Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. You are listening to Tech Time with Summer's F1, presented by Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and this episode is called Back with a Vengeance. And I'm joined today by the hardest working man in Tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, technical editor at motorsport.com, the man with the plan from Techistan, and known to all the cool kids onto Intertubes as Summers F1. Summers, it is an utter and complete delight to have you back today on the show. Welcome. Uh, thanks, Matt. It's good to be back. Yes, and you've been up to many, many things since we last saw you. Not all of them Formula One related, but most of them entirely Formula One related. Yeah, well, we've had a lot of time to fill, haven't we? So obviously there's plenty of stuff to to get out there, whether it be current content or the classic stuff that I've had to come up with as well. Well, Mr. Spotter of Differences, uh, how about we uh, dive right into all the good stuff right up top? So we missed you at the opening of the year. And I will say to the audience, I've been very fortunate that we've been able to have our own our own uh, communication. So I've been able to sort of keep up. But for our listeners, how about we go back to the very beginning of the year and just sort of take a look at a couple of the big themes. And based on how everybody's been performing, I've sort of divided us into three groups, sort of the Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull group, even though Ferrari more for budget than for actual performance reasons, if you get my drift. Uh, Renault, McLaren, and uh, Racing Point, and maybe Alphatari. I'm not quite sure where they fit. And then, of course, the sad people at the bottom, Alpha, Haas, and Williams, although maybe not as sad as we thought at the beginning of the year. Let's start with the top. Mercedes showed up, and they seemed miles ahead. It seems an unusual amount of development and progress for them to have made. What was happening at the beginning of the year, and why did they look so spectacularly good? Well, I think it's just a culmination of what we've seen over the past few years in this hybrid era. And I think predominantly where the biggest gain came and i think that it carries across to both racing point and williams as well which has dulled 
since because of the new regulations that have come in for the power units. But I think that's where the biggest gain was made. Uh, Ferrari obviously made a massive leap forward in terms of where they stood in 2019 uh, to, to where they'd been in the past. And Mercedes felt that they needed to catch up. So they put a huge amount of development work into their power unit for 2020. On top of that, though, which is uh, something that I think that might have just been missed, uh, is the fact that Mercedes kind of stalled for 2019 in terms of their power unit development. I think they kind of missed the beat in terms of um, coming forward. So they kind of you know, stayed where they were for 2019 in the power unit stakes. Some of the updates that they made just didn't work on, in terms of cooling, etc. And so I think you've, we've almost got a double whammy. You know, they've got the gains that they should have had for 2019. And then on top of that, they've got the gains that they felt they'd been pushed into a corner for chasing Ferrari. Which, of course, is um, nigh on hysterical if you're Ferrari. You have you have not only shot yourself in in the foot, you've also shot yourself in the other foot by convincing Mercedes that they were really that far behind. And Ferrari turned up. And they were the victim of, it seems like they were, they're the victim of more than, if I don't want to do your job for you, but they seem to be the victim of more than just a power unit that has suddenly been robbed of its power. And I say this because we've seen, even at the other teams, even at Alpha and Haas, if you look at year over year, we've seen marginal improvement uh, from the two of them. Whereas with Ferrari, oftentimes we, they're actually in the red. They've actually de-improved. Yeah, I mean, Ferrari are a separate case upon themselves. You know, we've seen them slide completely off the scale. And that is primarily to do with the power unit, as we know. Um, The United States Grand Prix last season was the waypoint at which they suddenly lost the ability to use the the, uh, tricks and tools, let's say, that they'd accumulated for six to nine months ahead of that. but that has also had a, a major effect on the placement of their development for the car going into this season because they'd already obviously primed themselves for building the 2020 car. So you're almost locked into certain decisions. And suddenly now you're 50 to what I actually feel like is more like 75 horsepower down compared to you know the, the way you effectively should be. And because of that, there's lots of knock-on effects to your chassis, your aerodynamics, uh, and it, it's a long road back. I mean, we've had this discussion um, separately a, a, away from, obviously, the, the podcast, Matt, and the, the reason is, is multiplied by the fact that it's going to take a long, long time to get back to where they were, let alone, you know, go any go beyond that performance factor. So, Unfortunately for the Ferrari fans, it is a long road back to to the kind of performance that we'd like them to be at, because at the end of the day, we do want a challenger for Mercedes. And Ferrari were starting to step up to that that mark. They were a team that could, on their day, beat the likes of a Mercedes. And unfortunately, we don't kind of have that this year. It really needs Mercedes to, to trip themselves up in order for us to have that kind of battle. So... It is a shame in some respects, but unfortunately, as we've found out, um, secret agreements aside, Ferrari were really doing something that they shouldn't be doing, um, and they've been paid back for it, unfortunately. Yeah, um, and I do want to ask at this point, we've talked about Ferrari, we've talked about Mercedes. Do you think, based on what you told me about Mercedes then, that, and this is something you did highlight to me very much, that Red Bull chose its complicated new suspension 
for similar reasons that Mercedes threw everything in the through the kitchen sink at their power unit to solve their cooling issues and to bring forward the performance they felt they needed to be competitive with Ferrari. Why would they make such a big change uh, going into this year? Well, I think there's, there's several things, isn't there? We have to remember that I know that this period in time, these last nine months have effectively felt like 12 years, uh, but 2021 was essentially going to be a new car. And now that's been pushed to 2022. So I almost feel like a lot of the teams, especially the big budget teams, have basically gone and emptied the drawers and said, you know, all the design drawers where things have left been left aside for years. Oh, we don't think that we should be pushing that design because it's going to cost us too much time or resource. And they thought, well, let's bring those tricks and, and tools out of the drawers and let's throw them at this year's car. Uh, certainly, like you were mentioning with the suspension on on the front of the Red Bull, it is very different to what we see elsewhere down on the grid. Uh, and that's primarily to do with the fact that they've put their steering rack behind the, the suspension in some respects. So it changes the dynamics of the front suspension. Um, it is a very different layout to what you see elsewhere on the grid. Uh, and obviously, that is going to have an impact on the performance of not only the suspension, but for the reason that uh, the Red Bull will have done it primarily aerodynamics because, you know, the teams are all looking to control ride height. And that is essentially where Red Bull have been exceptional in the past at gaining performance. All right. So let's talk then uh, for a second. If they were after better aerodynamics, one presumes that was how they thought they had the best chance of catching up uh, with, with Ferrari and Mercedes. Um, and perhaps they didn't expect to be thrust into the role of second best team on the grid and the only people really capable of competing with Mercedes in any meaningful sense, even when that's only Mercedes making some kind of mistake or being limited by environmental factors. Um, but let's take a look at the midfield for a second. We have, uh, indeed, Renault, McLaren, and Racing Point. Everybody thought that Racing Point was going to, was going to dominate. Coming into testing, coming into the first race, where were they? And, and and sort of what do you think people were missing about the situation that, that has led it to look more like uh, where we are right now? Okay, so, so I think the, the biggest thing in terms of the racing point situation and the, the strange read that everybody had on them is that obviously they copied last year's Mercedes. And everybody knows that this year's racing point is very, very similar to last year's car. In some respects, too too much like last year's Mercedes, let's say. But in other respects, they are very different in the way that they approach things. For argument's sake, they still have an air-to-air intercooler setup rather than the water or, sorry, liquid-to-air cooling system that Mercedes have had since the hybrid era started. And so there are many factors why racing points are in the position they are. But what we have to remember is there's a massive gap between what a car starts a season like and the performance that he's gained over a season. So the racing point that we saw start 2020, or at least the the first tests of 2020, is probably around the mid-season W10, last year's Mercedes. So you're already half a season's car development behind Mercedes. And if you compare that relative to the other guys, the likes of Renault and McLaren that they are fighting with, they have actually bought new cars to the grid you know they've bought their new designs their new packages so they're effectively on their 2020 let's say version one of their car whereas 
racing points are on a version 0.5 of a 2019 car so effectively although they've got the best of last year's cars it's the middle of last year's car not the best of 2020's car so they're always going to be slightly behind but they do have the advantage of the fact that that is a very compliant car obviously you know he won a championship last year with mercedes so for me it's it's kind of difficult to say that it is a Mercedes out and out because of this situation where they've kind of used a very much of a Mercedes design, but unfortunately for them, at least, it's the middle of last year's design. It's not this year's design because they didn't have access to this year's design. So for me, they, they will always start to fall back because they're always behind the development curve. I mean, they did bring a very interesting update to the last race, don't get me wrong. But is it enough? You know, is three tenths, which is the muted um, amount that that upgrade is worth, is that enough to then bring them further ahead in the grid pattern again uh, compared to McLaren and Renault? And I don't think it is because they're unlocking more performance from their 2020 machines, not a version 2 2019 machine. Right. If that makes sense. No, in fact, it totally makes sense. Uh, what I'd like to ask you about, though, uh, is do you think, relative to where they were when they ended last year, do you think this was a good, solid bet for them? Relatively, do you think they bought, e- even though they're behind and not doing as well as we would have expected, because we were like, oh, yeah, Mercedes, if you look at last year's Mercedes in the middle of it, they're not Mercedes. So they're not going to be able to extract the same performance from it that Mercedes is. I hear you saying that. And they're also beginning to own the design a little bit and take it in slightly different directions. And I think that's going to be nothing but good for them and and make them more competitive. But relative to the previous design, do you think that this was a wise choice for them? Was this the best bang for their buck? I mean, obviously for Haas and Ferrari, which is a bit of a different situation, that was a very clever thing for them to do. And they bought a lot of performance they never would have had as a brand new team on the grid. But Racing Point weren't a brand new team. They had uh, data, they had established designs, they had uh, long running experience with what they had been doing. Was this a good choice? And um, and as you see it play out, has that changed your mind at all? I personally think it was a good choice. And the reason why I think it was a good choice is that they buy a, a significant amount of hardware from Mercedes. So they buy their power unit gearbox, rear suspension elements, <clears throat> brake ducts, and so forth. So, you know, we do have to consider the fact that it is essentially, at the very core of it, are very much like what has to in that they purchase items from Mercedes. So that also dictates to racing points, some of the requirements of them to build their car. Um, You know, it it changes how you want to use your cooling layout. It changes how you want to use your wheelbase. uh, And all of these things add up to them wanting to move more towards a Mercedes style of car. Andrew Green has said on many occasions that they are almost locked into a certain wheelbase because of the decisions that Mercedes take. It effectively means that racing points force India, as they were before, must take those um, decisions as well. Unfortunately for racing points, they used to follow a more Red Bull style approach to their aerodynamics, and the two sort of didn't collide very well with one another 
And that, for me, is essentially why what Racing Point have done is a clever move because it has allowed them to say, well, we can't get what we want to do out of the Red Bull pattern. They've been trying it for years. Some would say successfully, some would say unsuccessfully. Why not try this other way? And the reason that they haven't tried that up until this point has been budget. And now they don't have that problem so much either. So it makes sense to then make the switch to the Mercedes style of aerodynamic platform as well. And as you say, they have gone outwards and worked on their own design philosophy as well, as the new update has proved, although it is more towards a Williams style than it is a Mercedes, let's say. But what I find interesting is that whereas Haas buy as much as they possibly can from Ferrari, so effectively, you know, at the very core of the Haas car, you will find a Ferrari, the racing point does have a fair amount of differences. For argument's sake, a lot of the suspension elements are racing point IP. So they understand how to suspend the car. And now they're having to work on how to suspend the car to work with a new aerodynamic platform. So although they've got essentially what most people see as a last year's Mercedes, they're still having to learn how to make that car operate within their own parameters as well. So it is a challenge. And I think that is part of the, what we're seeing is that they're having to learn on the fly how to get the best from a package that they don't entirely understand. Right. And so that would be behind perhaps my observation that it's very much in the races where they tend to struggle, particularly with managing their tires. It's because they have a new platform and they're still learning how to properly manage it through a race. Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes down to, and I know this is going to sound ironic, but the brake ducts. Um, you know, they're, they've been used to working with certain temperature thresholds. Now suddenly they've got something entirely different. Um, some would say last year's Mercedes, obviously, um, which the latest update, believe it or not, the front brake duct is almost identical to the last iteration of Mercedes front brake duct. I'm surprised that the teams that didn't protest didn't have a word to say about that. But, you know, that's for another topic, I guess. Um, but, yeah, you know, we all know that there's a heat transference from the way that the brakes transfer energy through the brake ducts into the wheel rim and then outwards to the tyres. And even having Checo Perez as a driver for Racing Point hasn't really helped them in that respect too much this year. We all know he's a bit of a tyre whisperer but I still think he's been struggling in that respect because it is a very different way of operating the car. Okay, well, let's talk about McLaren then briefly. When they showed up at testing, uh, they, they sort of came on very strong. They, you know, they had some really good finishes late in the year. Did they have anything that surprised you? Were they in a position where you were like, oh, they're definitely going to be someone to watch? Or is this or is this kind of their thing? They show up, they do well early, and then they just sort of hang on, which is a plan we see a lot of midfield teams have. I think what McLaren have done over the last few years is worked out the fact that they're no longer a front runner. For, for a f many a year, I think McLaren still, in their minds, believe that they were the best team on the grid. And unfortunately, they haven't had that pecking order for quite some time. In fact, over a decade uh, and I think changing that mentality is quite a difficult thing to do. We see it in all sports, uh, you know, 
the likes of football, um, tennis players, for argument's sake, that think they were the, the best, say, five years ago. But unfortunately, they get overtaken and they still have the mindset uh, of, a, of a fantastic player that they used to be. Uh, and I think, unfortunately for McLaren, they, they'd found themselves in that mindset. For me, this year's car is more of a, I'm not, I don't want to say beige because that is offensive, but it, it, it's, it's not aggressive, let's say. It, it's simplistic in its design. It meets all of the requirements. It ticks all the boxes. All of the daisy chains meet up along the car. There's nothing too exciting about it, but it does achieve the results because unlike what they perhaps looked to do in the past, which was find a silver bullet, it doesn't look to be the monster qualifying car anymore. It looks to the race and says, this is where we want to be in the race. It's as if they're now looking across the broad spectrum of the entire calendar across a race weekend and realizing that they need a car that is going to be compliant for all of those situations and not just one situation, uh, which unfortunately some of their cars in the past appeared to have that outlook. I'm not saying it did, but that's how it appeared from the outside is that they were very pointed in the way that they were approaching things. I mean, especially in the Honda era, because we all know about obviously size zero um, that, that obviously really hurt them for some time. Yeah, well, it was kind of like they bet everything on a single on a single draw to an inside straight. But I must protest, beige is a legitimate color, too. And I will not have you. I will not have you disparaging beige. I am sorry. You're going to cancel me for mentioning the word beige. Yes. Well, maybe not cancel. Um, let's talk about AlphaTauri. They really didn't seem they seemed almost to be in like the Williams and Alpha Romeo Haas camp at the beginning of the year. But they've had. Well, they've had a race win. So so what is going on with them? Are they making are, are you excited? Do you, did did you see the possibilities inherent when they showed up or or was it just going to be a, a, another season where like every now and then they sneak into the points and someone has a good drive but then they just seem to fall right back. I, I've been very confused by their progress and occasional lack of progress throughout the year. I think Alpha, Alpha Tauri, sorry, um, fall under a strange category, don't they? Because at the end of the day, they don't have the budget that the big team has. They do have a decent pair of drivers, pair of safe hands, let's say, um, able to drag a car on their day further up the field than perhaps it's due. And I think what stands out to me for the Alpha Tauri team is that they always seem to be able to take a different approach in terms of strategy. Um, they, they're, they're just prepared to run the opposite to what others are, much like Red Bull in some respects, but at the far end of the spectrum. So they'll run a very long stint, for argument's sake, uh, in the first stint. And if circumstances fall in their favour, as it did at Monza, then you look like a genius. As Spanners would say, it's the Jensen Button approach to things. And that, for me, is where Alpha Tauri sit. I think they have made progress. But I also think that they're very canny in the way that they're operating their strategy and the way that they've pointed their car design these days in as much as very much like I've just mentioned with McLaren. They're not trying to win a race. They know that that is almost an impossibility, uh, a 5,000 to one shot, as probably Gasly was prior to the, the Monza Grand Prix, uh, Italian Grand Prix at Monza, sorry. Um, but they are doing a great job. There's no two ways about it. And is that 
all you need from Alpha Tauri at the end of the day because you don't want them perhaps challenging the big team, but do you want them taking more points off of the ones ahead of them? That's where I always ha- struggle with having the sister team not given so many to- toys and tools to play with. Because if it were me and I had two Red Bull teams, I'd probably want Alpha Tauri to be much higher up the grid and challenging for those points off the, the tail enders because then it makes your life easier for the bigger team. Well, yeah, it does. And you would think, if nothing else, that they wouldn't want a team like Renault uh, to be to be making that leap to fourth places on the regular, which they seem to be having done the last two races. I know you weren't super impressed with them when they showed up for winter testing, uh, but from where they are now, if you look back, can you see the bones uh, of what they've done? Or was this just literally like a happy accident for them where they found something and then they were able to parlay it into different downforce packages. I think there's a bit of both there and there's no real happy accident in formula one. I think there's a lot of work that goes on that goes unnoticed and that's more to do with hard work and dedication than it is to do with luck. Um, Understanding the package has been, I think one of Renault's biggest frailties over the last few years in terms of where they lie compared to their competition. And, you know, when they came back into the sport, they promised to be, you know, winning races in a certain amount of time. And they've really had to take a pill on that uh, and, you know, swallow their pride and realise that they are not going to win races anytime soon. Uh, They are still considered to be fourth at best on their day. So, I think they've made a lot of progress this season and a lot of that comes down to finding performance in the areas of the car that we we would consider low-hanging fruits, the area around the bargeboard cluster. And I've started calling it a cluster because you can't call them bargeboards anymore. There are so many fins, flicks, fences, end plates, foot plates that it is just not one surface anymore. Um, so yeah, I started calling them a cluster these days because otherwise I, I think it's a, a bit of a strange and confusing statement to use. Um, but I think they've made progress there. They've got a new front wing that they introduced. I think it was two races ago. Um, they've done a lot of work on the edge of the floor, which will only be good for this year, but perhaps we come back to that later. Um, and yeah, I just feel they've had, they have made good progress. But I think that it's relative progress. You know, they've not stormed up the grid by any res- any respect. It's more of a case of they've made gentle steps. And then I feel that they perhaps unlocked something when they realized how the car operated at a certain ride height or, you know, something along those lines. Because, they, you know, they, they have started to come on strong since the, uh, I think it was around Spa, wasn't it, when they, they reckoned that they found that particular setup that suited the car and it was when they were on low downforce and you have seen them move more towards a low downforce setup ever since yeah but even even i think they were happy because even at the relative higher downforce circuit they were able to find a happy medium and uh, i believe ricardo said that they 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 found that same thing with their different downforce package, it may still be low relative to what we see a Mercedes or a Red Bull run, but for them, it's enough to give them the performance, especially I think in the race, in the race 
they remind me of of um of of Lotus back back in the days when they still won races. They just seem to have a certain magic in the race on the tires that that other teams are lacking. Yeah, that that's a very salient point that I was just about to make as well. These tires. Um, uh, at the end of the day, they are ex- they have exceeded expectations in terms of the tires, and it almost seems as if certain teams ha- hadn't quite caught on to how to operate the tires under the new minimum tire pressures that Pirelli are running this year. Because for people that don't realise this, that when you run the tire pressures higher as we're having this year, it alters the shape of the tire. And that also means that it alters the shape of the tyre as it deforms under load. So you get squish on the tyre effectively as the, as the load is applied to it, which change the aerody- changes the aerodynamic profile of the tyre. So you imagine the wake turbulence that comes off the tyre ordinarily, if we hadn't got the minimum tyre pressures we have this year, that will be changed with the pressures that we have this year. And so then that has a knock-on effect to all of those aerodynamic surfaces thereafter which also affects the right height and so on and so forth. It's a game of changing very small and minute things that add up to make a bigger game. And that's what, to me, what appears to have happened with Renault. It is many small changes that have added up to something much larger. All right. This brings us to everybody's favorite, Alfa Romeo, or Alfa Romeo, as you European types, I'm sure, like to say it and make fun of us. Um they really have sort of, I really feel like they were just kind of phoning it in this year. Uh, they didn't look particularly impressive at testing. And mostly they haven't been super impressive since. I know a lot of that's down to the power unit. Uh, but the team that was formerly Sauber was often one of the ones that brought really interesting and different things to races, I remember, from years past. Have they continued that? Have they have they been bringing some interesting stuff, or, or are they much like Haas, just sort of showed up uh, with a generic design that will work at most places, and they're just hoarding their money so they can try and be competitive in twenty twenty two? Yes, essentially, I think there's uh, a call for that. I, I think for Haas and Alfa Romeo, let's bulk them into one group because I think that's only fair. I think that if you look at what problems Ferrari have in terms of how that power unit situation has affected them from a chassis and aerodynamic point of view, you also have to carry that across to Haas and Alfa Romeo, and it becomes a relative downgrading factor. So because the chassis or an aero packages of those two cars are dissimilarly less good, <laughs> to use poor English, than the Ferrari, they are going to have a relative drop-off in terms of performance. And that, for me, is why they have obviously dropped off the back end of the pack and brought Williams back into play. Uh, I think a lot of what we're seeing this season between the front-runners and the rear-enders, the rear-gunners, is the disparity between the power units and how that has affected the chassis and aerodynamic side of things. In terms of updates, we haven't really seen anything from Haas, uh, which they promised they wouldn't really bring anything. Uh, we have seen them regurgitate old designs for special tracks like Monza, um, where they have a very low downfall setting. Um, and and it's much the same, if I'm honest, for, for Alfa Romeo. I think they've basically almost 
I don't want to say given up on this year, but I think they've realized that spending a huge amount of resource on this year isn't realistically going to gain them too much down the line. And something that comes to mind about this situation is in order to game the system of the next regulations, one would want to finish as low as possible because that would require you then to run with more budgets and you would also get more CFD and wind tunnel time. And I'm not saying that would be going on at all, but if a system is to be gamed, Formula One teams will know how to do it. And so I do feel that perhaps if you were in a situation whereby you knew you were onto a losing factor anyway, and you can say save face in some respects further down the line, perhaps you take some pain immediately right now and gain that wind tunnel and um, CFD percentage factor uh, going into the next regulation set as it will be um, for your 2022 car, which would essentially give you a massive, massive performance advantage against some of your other rivals. Well, that's that's very American of you. I believe it's the NBA. We don't have a chat room today to correct me, but I believe it's the NBA that gives away the top pick in the draft by lottery to prevent teams from exactly that, from tanking the ends of their season to get the number one draft pick. They, they, they ensure that doesn't happen. So maybe this is something that Formula One will now have to look into. Thankfully, they have American owners, so no doubt some experience with manipulating the regulations to keep that from happening too much. It's an interesting point. I had not considered that, but you, you are correct. And we will talk about the regulations that are coming in soon enough. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's okay, I'll take my tinfoil hat off now, Matt. No, 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 put, put it on. Set it to one side. Yeah, put it on. <laughs> I, I, I own stock in Reynolds, my friend. All the, all the tinfoil you like. Let's talk about Williams real quick. Um, at the beginning of the year, everyone assumed they would be terrible. Um, we assumed that they would probably get sold, uh, despite previous assurances based on what they said very often. And in fact, they have been sold. So the good news for them is 
theoretically, they have some new capital coming in. They have new owners, so they might be able to make something out of it. But if I'm just looking at them, are you saying, uh, based on what I, uh, are you saying that really the only performance they have gained is simply because Haas and and Alpha have gotten worse, or or have they actually made some progress and some improvements independently of that? They have made improvements independently of that. I'm not saying it's the only factor. I'm saying it's the predominant factor. I'm saying that because of the additional performance that they've been able to get from the Mercedes power unit, they've made a leap forward. But I do think they are much better on their tyres, which was a major problem for them. I do think they've added some downforce um, because, again, that was a massive problem for them. But you can see that they're still unsure about certain things during a race weekend and that is the issue that they face is that sometimes they they have to flip-flop between setups you know both drivers trying different things and i know that's what free practice is for and a lot of the bigger teams do it as well but it always seems as if williams seem to be second guessing themselves in some respects and, and unfortunately for them or perhaps fortunately if it comes down to money they have been giving some of their free practice time up as well this season to Roy Nisani uh, who has been running a very different arrangement to the front drivers uh, in terms of downforce and obviously that will give them a read in some respects and obviously you get mileage etc but it isn't representative of the two drivers that are in the car at that time and that is the struggle of the smaller teams that are reliant on budget to be able to go racing, which unfortunately Williams have found themselves in in the last few years. I mean, hopefully uh, the new owners will come in and that sort of scenario will change. Um, but again, it's going to be a, there's going to be a latency to that. It will take time for those resources and funds and et cetera to, to filter down into the race team. So, if anybody's expecting a massive leap forward from Williams anytime soon, it's it's not going to happen, is it? At the end of the day, we are looking further down the road. And at the end of the day, I do feel sorry for the Williams family because they have been in this situation for a period of time now and they've been waiting for you know that event, this moment in time where they can make their leap back up the grid. And 2021 was the waypoint that you thought that that might happen. Because as everybody hopes, and I'm sure it won't actually happen, uh, all of the teams will be drawn closer into one another again. And hopefully then that makes the results more of a lottery and you end up with the likes of Williams winning races or gaining points, et cetera, et cetera. And unfortunately, I think the whole pandemic situation really brought under a light, under a spotlight, the fact that Williams couldn't survive that long. They couldn't make it to 2022, which is when the regulations had been pushed Two. And I think that's the problem that they faced. Um, and hopefully uh, the new owners will come in with some ambition and, and obviously put some finances in the coffers in order to try and sort out the issue that Williams have had for quite a long time now, unfortunately. Yeah. So if, if we're going to talk about them, let's do get into it real quick. Looking back, we'll just take a moment and do a Williams retrospective. Looking back at what point, like what with the benefit of hindsight, what was the turning point for them? Because certainly the first few races of the first season, really, of the new regulations, they were they were the 
opposite end. They were the top of the midfield. And I remember them almost, you know, almost, almost taking like third and qualifying, like at the right track, they were properly, properly competitive. Where did it all start to go wrong for them? And, and have you been able to sort of identify a root cause or is it just sort of a, well, I can look at this year and see this and, and, you know, this is when they started putting cardboard boxes on the back of the car and that's why it was bad interestingly i was asked this question the other day by a good friend and my response to him was when they lost the bmw deal in the mid 2000s and that's how far back i was going because since then unfortunately i see a pattern at williams whereby they haven't really got to the heights that we would expect from a team like williams and that was the last time that they really partnered with an engine supplier was when they were with BMW, and obviously they went on to to uh, power Sauber and and so on and buy Sauber in the end before they obviously came out of the sport again. I mean, if we're only going back as far as the hybrid era, um, twenty fifteen was a decent year for them, but it was at a point when the Mercedes power unit was still the go to. We must have this to win races, and. Williams was still in a point whereby they were designing a car that wasn't trying to produce too much downforce, let's say. It was a slipstreamer. It was very quick in a straight line, um, but it wasn't necessarily the best package around a racetrack. And as the regulations have continued to favour more and more downforce, where we're at a point now where I don't think we've ever had more downforce on cars in the sports history, um, that is where we've lost Williams because if they've need to dial in more downforce, they just haven't been able to find it. And, and that, for me, is where the downfall is. They've simply just haven't been able to keep up with the, the, the boys above them. And whether that's down to aerodynamics or whether it's down to platform, because we have to remember that there's a difference between being able to design a car that operates at one angle of attack etc compared to being able to operate over a wide range of situations and for me Williams have never really had a decent car in this hybrid era that has been good under all circumstances and for me it comes down to their suspension side of things uh, they always seem to be just that little bit behind the game in that respect I mean the the step that they tried to make when Paddy Lowe was bought in, let's say, took them in some very interesting di- directions in terms of aerodynamics, very much towards the front runners, you know, daring solutions. But they didn't, they couldn't translate that on the track. So there was something else fundamentally wrong with the car. And so you have to question several aspects of their car design and not just one thing in particular. And that then obviously brings you back to the likes of McLaren this year, who have designed a car that can operate under many, many different circumstances. It's not a one-trick pony. And so I also then look at Mercedes and think exactly the same thing. They're not just good at one thing. The Mercedes is good because it is good in every single facet of the car design. And yes, they do have weaknesses, as they've shown up this year. The likes of Austria with the gearbox problems, um, the likes of Silverstone with the tyres and exploding in the first race and blistering in the second race. You know, they go through those stages. But for a team like Mercedes, they are so good at finding those problems and resolving them 
quicker than you've ever seen any other team in the sports history do it. So for Williams, unfortunately, it's it's been a road that they've been travelling for a very long time. And unfortunately, I still think that they've got a long way to travel before they might get out of the mire that they're, they're, they're kind of in. Yeah, so almost uh, once again, we're looking for sort of a wholesale upgrading of personnel, that right person to walk in the door, kind of like, um, I want to say, was it Pat Fry at McLaren? And just right, yes. right the ship, point them in the correct direction, and then let people get on with it. Yeah, I, 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 Formula One, I don't believe there's just one person behind that that kind of scenario. There's, there's many people behind the, the most... Um, Sorry, the best performing teams have the have a, a glut of people um, at the top that are able to manage things. And yes, you're right. Pat Fry came in, and you can kind of correlate some of those successes that McLaren have recently had behind his arrival. But then you've also got James Key, who arrived from Toro Rosso to um, McLaren in a similar sort of pattern as well. Um, obviously, you've got Andreas Seidel arriving, and you know you can earmark certain goals let's say around the arrival of personnel um but i think there's a collective hive mind that has to be in place in order to gain those results and that's perhaps where some of the, the weaknesses of other teams are is that they've relied too heavily on one person to be able to write the ship rather than having a, a an array of people that are able to multi-manage situations in fact mercedes probably have too many people in that respect you know that, and that's probably why they are so successful because they have so many key individuals that are there that have done and got those results in the past for other teams. So they're able to find those inaccuracies in their performance uh, to to right the ship. Well, and they also have a structure in place where if you spot something, it can be fixed, and if something goes wrong, it's a team problem for everybody to solve. And uh, this, to me. One of the most interesting things, because uh, I'm about to ask your opinion of looking at where we are now, who's sort of met your expectations, who's exceeded. I'm going to ask you for grades. You're going to have to grade the teams for me where they are right now. Who's done better than you thought? Who's sort of met those expectations and who has managed, even even with all of your knowledge at the beginning of the season, to to sadly disappoint you? But for me, one of the people who has actually impressed me the most, and I was the least impressed with when he showed up, uh, had to be Zach Brown, because I did not think he had, a, he did not look like a great fit necessarily. Um, maybe it was just the drive to survive the way they portrayed him. But man, he, he has cleaned house and set up a structure that has allowed McLaren to, to make the most of where they are and what they have. And and I I've been very impressed with that. And it seems to me that in Mercedes the same way. You're like get rid of Ross Braun, get get rid of these people. Are you kidding me? But I've got to hand it to Toto Wolff. He has put in place the most remarkable, flexible, and uh, productive uh, structure that I think I've ever seen at a team. Yeah, I think you've said it all. Really, the the structure is so important in terms of being able to get the best overall performance from everybody that works within that infrastructure you know everybody is pulling in the same direction and at other teams perhaps you have a situation where you have people rowing against the, the against one another let's say um i want to do this but you want to do that well let's go and row off in different directions and see if we meet on the other side of the pool 
Uh, and unfortunately, sometimes that does work and so, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but yeah, Zach has made massive changes at, at McLaren. And I think a lot of the changes that Zach has been involved in have revolved around what you would call business decisions. Because at the end of the day, that's his, his realm. You know, he, he understands the business side. But he, at, the, at the core of it, he is a motorsport man as well. We do have to remember that. So some very good decisions there. Bought the right people in. Perhaps got rid of the right people at the same time. Um, and Mercedes, it's only following the same trajectory as what Mercedes did. You know, Mercedes came along and, and put in charge who they wanted, instilled this confidence in the fact that there's no wrong or right answer. We win as a team, we lose as a team. And that is a big factor from the psychological point of view that you're not going to bear the consequences of mistakes by yourself, but as a collective. And I think that from a sports psychology point of view can be massive. Um, does bring me to a point that I just wanted to make about Albon and Verstappen in that respect as well. Because I know there's a lot of talk about replacing Alex Albon at Red Bull um, in the second seat against Max Verstappen. And I do think that that is slightly unfair. And the reason I say this, and it's something that I don't find is often told or mentioned or given to people as information, is that Alex didn't have the same equipment as Max did in the opening phases of this year. That is a fact. He was behind on update schedule for a long period in this season. It's only recently that they've started to get the same sort of parts. And that's because of obviously the processing of parts to go onto the car. You know, they only make one front wing of the new specification for argument's sake. And that goes onto Max Verstappen's car and so on and so forth. A bit like we had with the whole Vettel Weber scenario all those years back where Vettel stole the front wing off of Weber at Silverstone, and uh, we had the not bad for a number two driver scenario. Um, but on top of that as well, we also have a situation where drivers tend to get the best engineers on their side of the garage, let's say. Yeah. And we all know who's number one at, at Red Bull. No. So we all Tell know me, who, who's number one? Yeah. So we all know who's getting the best stuff. Um, so I do find that what Christian Horner's defense of Alex Albon has been criticized because of the win from Gasly. And as much as I do think that Gasly is a fantastic driver, we do have to realise there was an extreme amount of circumstance involved in the win in Monza. Yeah. So, you know, you can't take into that 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 is a direct win because up until the circumstance, he wasn't going to win the race. Um, so for me, I just wanted to make the point that I think it's difficult to say that Alex Albon should be replaced when you don't realise how much different the equipment and mental psychology is on one side of the garage to the other. And that, I think, is a factor that's not talked about too much um, across all the teams. We're not only talking about Red Bull here. There's a lot of it go up and down the, the paddock, um, depending on where and who fits in with what team. Yeah, well, I, he, Albon, and Ocon have been absolutely, for me, two people I think have been unfairly targeted by TV commentary. <clears throat> Sky. And and it frustrates me, especially in, uh, from the point of view of Albon, 
he got that drive because he was on track, capable of overtaking cars when it mattered. And overtaking cars, he had that same sort of fluid racecraft that Lewis Hamilton has, say, compared to Valtteri Bottas. And that's why Red Bull wanted him. And he never stopped delivering that. So yeah, he had these spectacular drive from the backs. He had the qualifyings that weren't great, but he never stopped doing the thing that got him the job in the first place. So I was always surprised by that. I do know that at a certain point it's Formula One. And if you're a second off your teammate in qualifying, eventually they will find somebody faster. But to me, it always looked like Red Bull said, we will start with your ability to pass people on track and we'll work on the rest of it. And you know, it seems like progress is being made there. Uh, and it's interesting you bring up the um, the disparity in parts and the availability of parts, especially this season, when I'm sure it's often magnified with the races being so close to each other and not having time to bring slightly different and improved developments to each race because you don't you don't have the time to do it. Um, that I'm sure has played into it as well, but I'm glad to see him getting a little bit of his own at the last race and maybe some of the pressure coming off. Yeah. And we also have to remember that the car itself was very difficult to drive at the start of the season. Uh, even Max struggled with the car from time to time, especially on low fuel. They had a major problem when they were lower on fuel. And I think the, we mentioned this in passing ourselves um, is how on a knife edge, the car appeared to be and would often spin, let's say, in testing. We saw numerous spins in testing, and we've seen Max spin the car several times uh, in free practice in the first part of the season. But as Red Bull have started to dial the car in and understand and realise why that was a problem, we've started to see the narrowing of that gap in performance between the two drivers, along with, obviously, what I mentioned about the difference in parts on the car. So I think we're probably down to about three-tenths of a difference now. And on top of that, I'd also remind people that it's very difficult to have two drivers that enjoy to drive the same car in the same way. So, again, you would highlight the Weber and Vettel scenario. You know, Weber couldn't really drive the off-throttle cars in the same way that Vettel could drive them. And so you had a disparity in performance between the two. And that swung depending on what type of circuit they were at. And so I think to say that Albon is off the pace is not is not quite accurate. I think there's a lot of circumstances going on in the background that you have to take into account as well. Uh, I thought you were going to mention and the deforming of the tires, because we did have those beautiful tires that completely handed uh, Weber his chance till uh, till the sad, tragic events at Silverstone. Um, okay. Time to time to rate the teams. Who has done better? And you don't have to explain it unless you want to. But of the teams right now, where they are right now, who has who has exceeded what you thought they would be able to achieve based on sort of what you saw at testing? I think you can't look any further than Mercedes to start with because they crush their opposition every single year. Um, they just seem to be able to take the ball and run with it. I'm more impressed with Red Bull in terms of how they've been able to react to the problems that they had at the start of the season. I, I thought it might take them a little longer to get up to speed and be able to get close in terms of performance to Mercedes than it has done. I thought we might only really be starting to see them 
getting to the point that they'd already got to at this point in the season, let's say, which is where they usually do. So it goes to show something about starting development early in Red Bull respect. Um, in terms of who I, I think has impressed me the most, I'd probably say McLaren because, like I said, they've stopped designing silver bullets and started designing cars that can do things over very many different scenarios. Uh, you know I was never a big fan of Renault, and I think they've done exceptionally well with where they've got to this season as well. So I'd have to say them. I'm kind of disappointed with Racing Point because you would have expected them to do be able to do better with a car that won the championship last season. All points aside that we've already gone over at the start of the episode. And obviously, in terms of rating the worst, you would have to say Ferrari because they've really dropped the ball. And they are unfortunately in a position that no team you want to see in but they are and it's going to take them a quite a considerable amount of time to come back Uh, this makes a beautiful segue except for i do have one more quiet question for you last year we saw haas really really struggle to understand their car do you think they have put that behind them because with the ferrari power unit being so um woeful disastrous catastrophic i don't know pick your favorite um it's been a little bit hard to tell but it it seems that there have been the occasion occasional encouraging sign from them do you think they've gotten on top of whatever it was that was their problem last year well their problem last year was tires that's a simple fact they were struggling to get them in their operating window and once they were there they didn't know how they got them there and how they would keep them there and if they would ever see that that position ever again and so Fundamentally, they couldn't get the temperature in the tyre to be able to get the performance out of it that they desired. I think they've kind of resolved some of those issues this year. And I still think that there's a lingering doubt over whether they've successfully applied it purely because their chassis isn't in the position they'd like it to be because of the power unit. But I do think they've made a stride forward, let's put it that way. Um, they've made some changes to certain areas of the car from an aerodynamic point of view that should have helped them to fix those issues. So you would suggest that they've moved in the right direction. Whether they've done that by understanding the problem or via just basically updating those areas of the car anyway, I don't know. But I think that they have made some strides forward. Excellent. All right. So let's talk about next season. Now, next season, we were originally looking at regulations that were to be frozen, cars that were to be frozen. Then there was the issue with McLaren needing to change to adapt to their new power unit. And I want to ask you about that, but I'm going to put a pen in it for a second. And I've recently seen it suggested that because of the, well, three-year-old tires at this point going into 2021, that the FIA has thought it prudent to trim back the speeds a little bit by reducing downforce. Now, that's an argument we could probably spend a long time on all by itself. But for the moment, if we accept it as a fact, does these minor aerodynamic, or maybe not so minor, you tell me, changes, do they open a little door for Ferrari to maybe claw something back that without these changes there would have been no hope of? Mm. I'm not so sure about Ferrari, if I'm honest. And I find Ferrari in quite 
an unpredictable position because they have to wind back so many things. It's not just sorting out the chassis to deal with a 50 to 75 horsepower drop off. It's not just about realigning your suspension to, to deal with those problems that you've created from an aerodynamic perspective. It's about redesigning their power unit in totality because you've baked in certain solutions that you can no longer use and your power unit derives power via that method, whether it be over the very narrow power band at the bottom or right at the top end of the power band. And on top of that, that affects then your energy recovery and so on and so forth and your fuels and your lubricants that they are now unable to change because they have to show them to the FIA at the start of the season, which everybody seems to have missed. And that is predominantly another reason why they are locked in the situation they are this season because they can't make the changes they need to. So they're having to take a big old pill, swallow it hard and think about next season. But how do you wrap up two and a half years worth of development into six months? You can't. So something has to give. And unfortunately for me, Ferrari are going to have to take another pill and move to 2022 rather than think about next season. I'm not saying they won't make a performance leap forward next year, but I do think that they will struggle in relation to everybody else when it comes to their position on the grid. Okay. And so let's apply that then to the uh, teams powered by Ferrari. Do you, and help me out with understanding the tokens here. The tokens apply both to the chassis and to the power unit, or are they just strictly to the chassis? And regardless, do you see Ferrari being able to at least claw some performance back for next season's power unit? I'll start with question at the end to start with. Yes, I do see them being able to claw some performance back for next season. And I think that's because they will be able to bring a new specification of power unit for next year that will be aligned with a different type of fuel and lubricants that they've worked with Shell on this year to unlock the performance that has been hidden by this year's power unit failures. In terms of tokens, you're going to see teams spending that on areas of the car that they need to change because they made mistakes with this year's car. They've only got two tokens, and they don't go very far. So it's got to be a pick on something that is extremely important. Otherwise, you've just thrown away a big potential in terms of lap time. Moving on to 2021's regs, we all know that they've moved, they've cut the edge of the floor back to reduce some of the downforce. The target was 10%. And today, the FIA have basically said that they are moving that goalpost again because the 10% that they thought was 10% before is now longer 10%. So... Because of the improvement that has been made by teams this year in terms of downforce, the projections that were seen at the start of the year have actually gone further. So 10% is probably only sort of 7, 6, 7% now. So they have to go further with their cuts. So what they're going to do now is teams will have to redesign the rear brake ducts. So the fins that stick out from the side of the brake ducts at the bottom, underneath the axle line, will only be able to protrude 40 millimetres, whereas now I believe it's 80 millimetres. And the strakes that fall in the centre of the diffuser 
they're lopping 50 millimeters off the bottom. So now they can run to the bottom of the reference plane. In 2021, they will have to stand 50 millimeters proud of the reference plane. So that is, in effect, the FIA saying, well, we realize that you're now making more downforce than we originally anticipated. So we have to claw some of that back. They actually wanted to go further, but it required them to make changes to other areas of the car. And the problem is, is that with the cost implications that we're already under, the areas that they're now decided that I've just mentioned actually are going to be redesigned anyway because of the floor situation. So they've kind of decided, well, we can't quite go as far as we wanted to perhaps, but we're going to do this anyway. So it's a bit of a cost-saving measure from the FIA to continue to reduce the, the situation. On top of that, I believe Pirelli are also taking a prototype tyre to the Portimao test, at uh, the Portimao race, that in free practice two, I believe it is, the teams will be handed these tyres and they have a slightly different construction to this year. And there's potential that those tyres might be used for next year as an interim solution to try to address the downforce tyre disparity that we've ended up with. And I think, unfortunately, what everybody forgets is, like you've mentioned, this will be the third year of using the same tyre construction. And that is a lot of performance difference from one year to the next. If you imagine how much gain that the teams have made since the end of 2018 to the start of 2021, and they're going to make throughout 2021, that is a huge amount of time. I haven't looked at it in lap time terms, but it must be a couple of seconds at least. Yeah, I think you're not too far off with that. And I do believe there were people at the time who were surprised that the teams all said, oh no, we don't want to have to slightly redesign our floor in return for the exact tire we asked you for. But then it turns out our drivers didn't like as much because they just weren't quite as grippy as and fast as they wanted them to be. I mean, it's, No, I'm saying nothing. I'm saying nothing here. I'm not saying a word. I want to ask you, the midfield has been, in many ways, the premier action this season between McLaren and Racing Point and Renault. Does the fact that, does the power unit that McLaren is about to get, the golden Mercedes power unit, make up for the fact that they will be able to change nothing else about their car? other than just essentially to wedge it in there in terms of their battle with Renault and in terms of their battle with Racing Point? Or do you think maybe it hands Racing Point a bit of an advantage now because they have, well, not only that, but they also have, I wouldn't mind you explaining this uh, decision where they're allowed to use the gearbox and brake ducts without having to spend tokens on them. That The way it was written sort of implied that they weren't using them now, and it was a design change, but it was an allowed design change they wouldn't have to spend tokens on. So I'm a little confused by that. Okay, the reason for that is because Mercedes wouldn't want to continue to make a gearbox and brake ducts, etc., that they didn't need to make if they were still supplying them to another team. So effectively, you get a free upgrade to the next year uh, because of Mercedes' requirement to change their, um, I don't know where, how we're going to put it, um, their production pattern, let's say. They, they basically want to, um, they want Racing Point to have the most up-to-date gearbox solution so that they don't have to continue to make one that's two years older. 
um, because obviously then you have to have the, sta- the same tooling, et cetera, retained. So effectively, that's the reason why the, the, the tokens uh, are a big problem for many of the teams because effectively racing points are gaining a gearbox upgrade for free because they don't have to pay a token for it. The same as Alpha Tauri will do with Red Bull because they share a Red Bull Technologies gearbox scenario. So they run a year-old gearbox on the Alpha Tauri. So they're running last year's Red Bull gearbox. And so next year, they'll run this year's Red Bull gearbox. And so that's the reason why the, there was a bit of an uproar over the tokens, because um, the likes of Renault were basically saying, well, we're going to have to spend a token to get a new gearbox, but these guys are going to get a new one for free. Why is that? And that is essentially what the, the problem behind those tokens were. Right. And do you think that McLaren is going to be handicapped or or do you think the advantage the Mercedes power unit brings makes up for the fact they won't be able to change anything else relative to Renault or relative to Racing Point? I think that Mercedes, uh, McLaren will make a, a, a small step forward in terms of their power unit um, being available to them from Mercedes rather than Renault because obviously there is a difference in the Mercedes and the Renault power unit, but it's all relative because do they do a good job with installing it within their car? And do they do a good job of installing it within their car based on the fact that they can't build a new chassis? They're having to make ad hoc changes, let's say. So it could be a wonky donkey like the Braun GP um, BGP01, which you know, as we all know, went on to win a championship with a, a, a slapdash gearbox on the back of a Mercedes engine. Um, but I don't see that kind of thing happening. Um, I do see them making a leap forward relative to where they are now because of the power advantage that they will have over the Renault power unit. But I do see them having some issues with the installation side of things. And if their Honda partnership has taught us anything, installation is perhaps a key issue for mclaren in that respect having said that they have done better than renault with their power unit than renault have done so who's to know really the biggest question mark i have personally over this whole power unit scenario circle where mercedes uh, mclaren go full circle all the way back to mercedes is renault now only have renault renault power units so they ain't getting as much data as everybody else. And Mercedes is suddenly getting more data again as well because they're supplying another team again. So we now have two Honda-powered teams. We have three Ferrari-powered teams. We have four Mercedes-powered teams and Renault out there on their Todd running around in circles getting data for just themselves. And we all know, data being king, that could be problematic for, for Renault going forward in terms of making performance up on the rest. Yeah, it it could indeed be a problem for them. Uh, Last team to ask about for next season, um, Red Bull and Mercedes run very, very different aerodynamic approaches to the sport. Uh, You have pointed out in the past that things like the tire pressures can help Red Bull out because it stabilizes the platform and helps them seal the diffuser at the steeper angle they like to run it. Uh, relative to Mercedes, who might struggle a bit because they have to run a stiffer platform and suddenly they lose compliance with tires that have more pressure in them. Looking at 
the way the aerodynamic regulations are changing for next season, do you see it advantaging either of those teams with regards to the platform and their current approach? So do you think it might help Red Bull more, the changes that are being made? Or do you think it might help Mercedes more? Or do you think it's just pretty much going to be a wash like it usually is? I mean, if you take a one-dimensional approach to it, you would say it would favour Mercedes because the way that the regulations are being changed effectively take the tools to balance that's created by the the rear tyre. So we're taking away a portion of the floor ahead of the rear tyre and we're now taking, with the new announcement today, some more tools away from the side of the tyre as well. And so what you're doing is taking away the ability to deal with the tyre squirt, which is created when the tyres squish down, deform, and push airflow laterally into the diffuser's path. And that creates a, a or robs the car of aerodynamic consistency. Um, so if you are to take all of those factors into account, and knowing the fact that Mercedes run a lower rake philosophy, you would suggest that they have less of that area to seal off so they should have less of a problem but as we know formula one isn't so one-dimensional as that and so there are many other factors involved in solving those issues but i do think that there are margin there will be a marginal gain for mercedes in that respect yeah all right then we're down to i believe the listener questions we have two one from lucas and he wants to know if you think raising point will change from air to air cooling to air to liquid cooling which I think would be uh, copying what Mercedes currently do. And John M would like to know, what's your wild speculation about what the teams are going to, what the various teams will spend their tokens on? And I think we can limit them to ones that you might have a faint hint of either through your amazing connections uh, with the teams or just like your sheer massive intellect and ability to process what you see. Okay. So, in terms of racing points, no, I don't see them making that change. And the reason for that is if they were going to make it, they would have made it this year when they changed to a Mercedes full-on philosophy um, because it would have given them the opportunity to do so because they could have then have essentially intimated or copied the entire cooling package of the Mercedes from last year. If you're going to learn, you may as well learn at the steepest end of the curve rather than taking it in smaller chunks. And I think they've already learned quite a lot this season from moving from one situation to another. So, no, I don't I don't think they will. I, I don't still quite understand why Mercedes-powered teams haven't gone down that route for, what is it now, six, seven seasons in the hybrid era? Because Mercedes have done it since 2014. Uh, so I've never understood why other teams haven't done that and have always used air-to-air coolers. Um, it'd be interesting to see what McLaren do next year, actually, whether they make that switch or not. Um, and in terms of tokens, I mean, if I had them, I'd probably just go to Vegas and spend them. But um, in terms of spending them on a Formula One car, probably <laughs> it's going to come down to intrinsic design concepts that you've got wrong. So things like your gearbox casing you might want to change the design of that because you want better aerodynamic profile in the coke bottle region for argument's sake um there's there's so many things that you can change in in that that respect with the tokens um but there's only two of them so you could 
it depends on how you want to spend them, whether you spend them individually, have one token for one certain area of the car to make that gain and then look somewhere else and that might help you out or whether you're going to spend them in bulk and, and go for two. Um, for most of the teams, as I say, though, it will purely be down to finding the the area of the car that you're most upset with when you designed it, uh, knocking the, the the edges off a, off the, uh, the the square and making it a round peg to go in that hole. That That's what they're essentially wanting to do with the tokens. Um, I think it was a smart move by the FIA, by the way, to do that, although I think two tokens was a bit mean, especially for certain teams on the grid. I kind of wish they'd graded it based on championship position and, and given some of the lower teams more tokens, and that would have been interesting. Whether they could spend them, and make it work would have been a different question. But if that availability was there, at least, you know, we might have seen some variance up and down the grid. Yeah, well, I must say that given that the tokens came in after the season started and after the pandemic started, I'm pretty sure that Ferrari was a team that was like, yeah, we know we'll be terrible at the beginning, but look, we can make lots of changes. We can move these things around. We know we know how to improve the car to make it at least a little more competitive. And then they get told, Oh, sorry, not only can you not do it this year, we're not even going to give you uh, freedom to make the changes for next year because I'm I'm guessing here, I'm not an expert, I just pretend to be one on a podcast, you are an expert, I'm guessing they probably need to change more than two tokens worth of stuff. Yeah, I mean, some teams will probably want like 25 tokens <laughs> um, because at the end of the day, you, you always want to improve. You can always see things that are better than what you want them to be um and you only have to look at adrian newey on a grid with his with his red notebook um to to see that there's always improvements to be made um just follow him around the grid and and watch him looking at different parts on the car is is fascinating uh because he's always trying to grab ideas from other people so you know you know if somebody as great as adrian newey thinks that there's the next big thing somewhere else down the grid, then it's it's got to be worth noting and, and trying to incorporate into your own design. So at the end of the day, if we weren't in this situation, we would have 10 teams with 10 brand new cars with very little in terms of carryover from the previous season. So that just goes to show you how much each team would want to change each year. And that's why we're in this situation where the FIA have said, Nah, enough's enough. Here's your tokens. You're only changing certain things. Yeah, and it will be it will be an interesting battle all on its own. And if you want to follow that battle in its entirety, in its fullest, down to its most minute flick and strike, please do look for Summer's articles on motorsport. And if you want to take a really deep dive, be sure to check him out on summersf1.co.uk, his very own website where he writes even more lengthily about subjects that fascinate and interest him. It's it's never a dull moment when you go there. And be sure to hit the link for the latest Missed Apex podcast as well. We talked about news and other fun stuff like that. As for me, I'm Matt PT55 on the Twitters, and I'm here to tell you to remember to drive hard, play loose, and be kind to your tires. Oh, I'm going to hear about that. I know I'm going to hear about that. He's going to get you. But I'm going to blame you, and he can't touch you. 
Now two meters. That's right. They have rules there now. Oh, man. I feel like we could easily have gone on for another hour. Two? Three? Yeah, there's just so much that's happened. But we'll have to save it for the next show. Yeah. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.